I grew up with the idea that the human body was something to be feared. And it was ugly, and it was not good, and, and it was to be ashamed of. Now, the point I'm making with this is that when we repress something, it does not go away. It will either come out as an obsession or a perversion. Now, what have we inherited in the collective about human sexuality? I've never seen so much obsession around human sexuality. That's all we want to talk about. You remember that all of the media came home from Cuba when the Pope was there because of that little girl in the White House. I mean, it really says something about the collective. I mean, there's an industry around uh, our obsession with human sexuality. And the church, God save it, is all it wants to talk about. It's an obsession. Now, for this idea of denying human sexuality as an evil that were to rise above, I always love that line in The African Queen where Humphrey Bogart says, well, it's only natural, ma'am. And, uh, and, and Catherine Hepburn, sort of being the matriarchal patriarch, <laughs> says, nature, my good man, is what we're put on earth to rise above. And so, this idea that we could rise above these natural instincts and that they are bad they don't go away, they come out as obsession or perversion. And think about the perversion that goes on in the church around human sexuality. There's a joke that's probably inappropriate to tell, but I'm infamous in my ability to do that that there's a 1-800 number if you've been sexually abused by a priest, and there's a 1-900 number if you want to be. <laughs> now, what I'm building here is a case for the shadow, and the contents of the shadow have so much to do with instincts and nature that have been unacceptable in our culture. So the contents of the shadow are not necessarily evil things or bad things. They are simply things that have not been tolerable in the collective or in the authorities around which this ego was developing. And so the contents of the shadow actually may be things that are of great value to us in our vocation of becoming human. The earliest part of a psychoanalytic relationship is beginning to do the work around the shadow. Now, it's not just instinctuality or body uh, or nature kinds of things that are in the shadow. It's also things that were just not acceptable to our parents. For instance, if we take a highly extroverted mother, 
who has borne to her a deeply introverted son. Now, we do know in this culture that extroverts are rewarded. In the East, introverts are rewarded. In this culture, extroverts are rewarded. Entertainers, CEOs. So the mother who is extroverted values extroverts. And as a matter of fact, she sees that as the goal is to become extroverted, and she has this child who is deeply introverted. And so she says to him and in his presence, something's wrong with Johnny. He doesn't want to join anything. He doesn't seem to have any friends. He just sits in his room and reads. Now, it's even more destructive for that little boy if he has a sibling who's extroverted or a good friend, a kind of compensatory alliance the child, children get where the extroverted child and an introverted friend as a kind of compensatory relationship. What messages is this little boy getting about his most natural quality, which is the way his psychic energy flows? He gets the message, something's wrong with me. And so his introversion is in his shadow. So the contents are not bad, nor are they evil. Uh, sometimes they're not even negative. They were just they were perceived by the authority as being unacceptable, and therefore they were repressed. They haven't gone away, and they're in the shadow. And the shadow wants more than anything else to be integrated, and it will. Here's another wonderful. King James' word, it will importune consciousness. It will act itself out in a plethora of ways. Not because it's bad, but because it wants to be loved. Now, you all by now are familiar with the writings of James Hillman. He's a fairly a controversial analyst who sees himself as second generation. But I like a lot of what Jim writes, and I like a lot of his work. And this very short little piece that he wrote several years ago <clears throat> in an anthology uh, called Meeting the Shadow, he wrote The Cure of the Shadow. The cure of the shadow is on the one hand a moral problem, that is, recognition of what we've repressed, how we perform our repressions, how we rationalize and deceive ourselves, what sort of goals we have and what we've hurt, even maimed, in the name of these goals. On the other hand, the cure of the shadow is a problem of love. How far can our love extend to the broken and ruined parts of ourselves, the disgusting and perverse? How much charity and compassion have we for our own weakness and sickness? How far can we build an inner society on the principle of love, allowing a place for every part of me? He goes on. The description Freud gave of the dark world which he found did not do justice to the psyche. 
The description Freud gave of the unconscious, or his word, the subconscious, was far too rational. He did not grasp enough the paradoxical symbolic language in which the psyche speaks. He did not see fully that each image and each experience has a prospective aspect as well as a reductive aspect, a positive as well as a negative side. Freud did not see clearly enough the paradox that rotten garbage is also fertilizer. There's power in darkness. I'm going to stop and we're going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and have question and answer. And uh, let me conclude by one of my favorite writers, uh, one familiar to almost everybody, and that is that wild-eyed English engraver named William Blake. Blake was outlandish and astonishing in his prophetic nature at the time of which he wrote. One of the early romantics who sort of uh, pulled down the facade of the persona of the church of his time. Blake writes this. I think this is terribly profound and a good conclusion to my opening remarks. All Bibles or sacred codes have been the cause of the following errors. Number one, that man has two real existing principles, a body and a soul. That's an error. Number two, that energy called evil is alone from the body. That reason, called good, is alone from the soul. Error number three. That God will torment, will torment man in eternity for following his energies. But the following contraries to these are true. Number one, man has no body distinct from his soul. For that called body is a portion of soul, discerned by the five senses, the chief inlets of the soul. I'm going to read that again. It's so beautiful. Man has no body distinct from soul, for that called body is a portion of soul, discerned by the five senses, the chief inlets of soul. The second truth, energy is the only life and is from the body, and reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy. Number three, energy is eternal delight. We'll take a break. Ten minutes. That, but let me just give a summary line to kind of prime our pumps to get us back. The thesis here is that, that really the self, as Jung defined it, is that which generates life from within. So that the self is that which generates our life from inside us. It also integrates all of those estranged and alienated parts of us most particularly the ego, and that we'll spend tomorrow 
looking at the Judeo-Christian myth as, as um, a, a, perhaps a map about individuation, and seeing that this fundamental sense of alienation and estrangement from God is really the alienation and estrangement of the ego from self. That that's the common human experience, a sense of separation and alienation from something that we knew at one time that we miss and long to return to. So the idea of reunion is about reconnecting with self. It's what, what is known as, and Edinger's popularized, the idea of the ego-self axis. And so the, I'm also saying tonight that the self so wants wellness that it will create illness in order to get it. That the self so wants wellness that it will enter into a pact with the devil in order to get us transformed. I refer to the book of Genesis and the book of Job. That this idea that, that there is a dark side to God or a dark side to the self that creates havoc for the ego in order to get it moving or transformed. So that the self wants wellness so much that it will create crisis and illness and accident in order to get us moving toward our goal of wholeness. That's part of the thesis here. The last thing I'll say is that I had a very wise supervisor who said, well, Pittman, you need to remember this, that if you will sit with people and be quiet, they tend to get better. That's that sense that the psyche will seek its own wellness if you find a container for that. Okay, so what's been stimulated? What are your questions? What are your responses? I, I, I can't promise I'll answer your questions, but I will respond to them. Yes, please. Well, the, the in, yeah, okay. The question is, could I define the ego-self axis, A-X-I-S, axis? I've lectured several times, and there's something about my Oklahoma accent that people don't, and they think axis is A-C-E-S-S, -S, so we're talking about A-X-I-S. Um, I was lecturing about the Cynex uh, a year or so ago, and somebody thought it was C-Y-N, Cynic, so I want to be careful we... You thought it was too, didn't you? S-E-N-E-X, Cynex. But the axis is the reestablishment of a relationship between ego and self. That by nature, that the ego evolves out of the unconscious, much like the fetus comes out of the womb. And so that there is this sense of aloneness and estrangement, alienation for the ego, struggling to find its meaning and its orientation because it's been cut off from self. And this is evidently part of the natural process, not unlike in, infant from mother or us from God. And so that the reestablishment of ego-self axis is that the relationship changes between the ego seeing itself as superordinate in the psyche and it changes to subordinate picture, or view of itself. So that this, the ego begins to see itself as subordinate to self, and the self is superordinate. 
so that that which directs and rules my life, as it were, is within me, and it is the self, not just my ego needs or my ego demands, that the self is something I can trust to know what is best for me in terms of. So uh, another way to say ego-self axis is that it is the religious function of the psyche because the religious function of the psyche is this idea that the psyche seeks to reconnect, so that the word religio means to reconnect. Ligare means to tie up or tie back. Ligament, ligare, religion, all the same root, which means to connect. So that a religious function is this longing to be reconnected to the source of our creation. And that's what the ego longs to be reconnected to the source of its creation, which is the self. So an ego self axis is when the ego begins to see it's a part of self, not apart from it. The last kind of response I would make to that is this idea that the ego really sacrifices or gives itself up in terms of its place in the psyche and um, is really dismembered in that sense or crucified as we would say in the Christian myth in order to be reunited with self. So ego self-axis is about an attitude toward the unconscious and it's one of seeking to be related and connected. Somebody else? Please. The question is uh, that early in the lecture I talked about children not being conscious, and yet observing children we see that they are conscious. Well, I'm, I think we're, we're talking about being conscious of being conscious, yeah. I think we're talking about the, the more sophisticated level of consciousness rather than simply awareness, that we're talking about those sort of philosophical arguments that went on about kinds of consciousness, the epistemological arguments about knowing and you know, th- that kind of sophisticated thing about consciousness that children are, um, you know, at the lower level of consciousness, as it were. One of the problems I have always had in lecturing about the psyche is that we only have spatiotemporal words to use, and so lower to me is higher. In other words, a lower consciousness is probably a higher consciousness. <laughs> Jesus seemed to think so. You know, this sophisticated, complex, highly developed consciousness may be the enemy of, you know, peace and hope and those things we look so for. Uh, so, I don't know what's higher and lower, but, you know, unless we become like children, we won't enter into the kingdom. I'm sorry? Yeah, childlike and childish are entirely two different, different things. Childish is a description of egocentricity, I think. Uh, you brought your own microphone. Good. The mic now, yeah. uh, are you going to sing or just? Uh... I'm going to wander around. Uh, whoever wants to talk. Oh, good. Thank you. Somebody else. Don't be intimidated by the microphone. Now we'll see. I was wondering what you thought of. What What are your thoughts on that? A lot of our role models that we have in Western society seems seem to be in the past so sanitized, so righteous, 
compared to now, a lot of the role models are, their darkness is sort of brought out, you know, in, in, in full view. And what difference does that make to our own development to see these people? Because we do look upon, I think, um, you know, whatever we see in public, we, we look upon as, as models for yeah. us to either model ourselves after or not. Well, this is a hard and difficult question. It's sort of, the, I assume we can hear the question now. It depends on sort of what one's goal is here. Is it adaptation or is it individuation? One of the, the two strong ego defenses are idealization and denial. And so we've come through a period with public figures of idealization. When in fact, you know, we knew about Kennedy and Mickey Mantle, but you know, nobody wrote about it because we wanted this idealized uh, figure. And that seems to create a better environment for adaptation. And that is, you be like this one-sided character who is strong and brave and wise. And okay. Now, individuation requires that we expose that human beings have dark sides and are not perfect, and so we can't idealize if we're going to individuate. We even take um, the, this idea of individuation and want to idealize it and romanticize it. I mean, it's, it's not terribly romantic, it's, and, and it's difficult, and it's full of garbage and darkness and difficulty, and so it depends on what the goal is. and, and so if we want people to adapt to an idealized model of being human, then we need to idealize our public figures and leaders and not expose their feet of clay or their dark sides or their backsides. But if we want authentic individuation, we need to accept that all of our leaders are, are human beings. And that's my response. And it feels like the collective is moving out of the idealization uh, and to the accepting of, uh, and a lot of this is American. You know, Europeans are a little, you know, Mitterrand's mistress and children come to the funeral. You know, I mean, we're a little more honesty about the reality of being human, but be that as it may, that's my response. Somebody else. Yes, please. Okay. Yeah. And uh, is wholeness simply a situation that is impossible to reach while alive? Is yeah. it back to the union with whatever? Yeah. And is yeah. The, the question is oft asked, and, and, uh, and a good question. The question is, is wholeness uh, a possibility for human beings? And... Um, and my response, and, and this is a studied response, but it's just a guess, is that death is a requirement for wholeness. Now that, that has a lot of implications to it. Um, that dying is, is a requirement for wholeness. It, it says a lot to me about uh, suicide, as a matter of fact. That suicide really 
the reason we've been sort of intuitively and morally outraged by suicide is because we realize that there, that there must be something about that dying process that's really important to the next realm. And so, suicide seems to not work yeah, in that sense. Um, so, yes, I, don't, I mean, I don't think... Um, one of my dear friends, uh, Ernie Bell, says that wholeness is like going halfway to the wall every day. You get closer, but you never get there. Now, the second part of your question was, what's the difference between wholeness and individuation? Individuation is just the process. Integration, I mean. Integration is the process uh, of moving toward wholeness. Somebody else. Yes, Margaret. Could you, uh, could you say something about, uh, in a yet broader sense, the tendency to idealize? Let me just uh, yeah. say a little more what I'm thinking about. Because we can idealize the morally upright, well-developed leader that has no lust and no desire and no weakness. We can also idealize wholeness yeah. and integration, right. and we are just putting up another ideal. Right. Now, we used to have to be perfect, now we have to be conscious. Right. And you can get... <laughs> You know, so what's the difference between striving after perfection and striving after consciousness? Because we're just setting up another ideal that is impossible to achieve. So there is something in human nature, it seems to me, that forever puts up some kind of an ideal, and then we say, well, no, that's lopsided, and we yeah. put it aside, and we put another one right next to it. Yeah. So I wonder whether you could address that a little. Well, one of the... the the things that, one of the very important concepts, I think, psychologically and theologically, that we haven't talked about is paradox. And, and here's what we're into always is that, that things are going to have opposites. And that they're in this wonderful term that Jung loved from Heraclitus called innoziodromia, which is this idea that opposites are seeking one's. Out. We're, we're always in this kind of imbalance and movement between, um, you know, authenticity and idealization or something. So there, there's that dimension to it. But also that, that idealization is a defense. And it's a defense against the anxiety that comes from incomplete or, or imperfect. And Mark is right. We can idealize anything. And we do, and it's a defense against the anxiety that comes from the incomplete or imperfect. Um, and, and so um, we do it so naturally. I mean, I, I've had people come into my office, and I begin to take a history, or what Jung called the anamnesis, and, and uh, well, tell me about, you know, your growing up. Well, I, I had an ideal childhood. By, by the time we're into the sixth month, we're, we're looking at about this idealized childhood. It's a defense, and it's a form of denial in a way. And so uh, another kind of synonym for what Marg is talking about is what I call sentimentalizing or romanticizing. And that is, I'm, I'm not greatly enamored by people who come to me and say they want to go on the journey. I mean, almost like I'm a travel agent. You know? Uh, you don't know what in the hell you're asking if you really want to, to, to try to individuate, you know, consciously or make it, I mean, it's, it's, uh, 
uh, not to be sentimentalized or romanticized, you know. It's, uh, it'll, in the shamanistic sense, it'll take you to hell and back. So, yeah, we'll romanticize, idealize, and they're all ego defenses against dealing with the pain or the anxiety that comes when you try to become a little more conscious. Somebody else? Please, right here down front. You mentioned Judeo-Christian myth earlier. What is that? The Judeo-Christian myth? Uh Uh, It's the Bible. Can I expand on that? (laughs) Well, this is a very complicated question, and I, I don't want to make a glib response. It's a good question. The, the problem is that, that that collection of books called the Bible, the word Bible really means library. So the Bible is a library of books. And in that library of books, there are certain sacred stories that uh, are under the category of literature called myth. And, and they, Jung felt as though... Um, that the myths were really the collective dreams, that myths were sort of to the collective the way dreams are to the individual. And it's, it's God or the self or truth coming through the collective in these sacred stories. And so in, in my vocabulary, myth is a, is a sacred story, a healing story, a story of a revelation about human nature. And so that's what I mean by the myth is kind of a catch-all term for the sacred story. So, in certain circles, myth is a, it's a pretty scary word because it, in our culture, it's become the opposite. You know, myth means untruth. It's just a myth. Well, in my vocabulary, myth means ultimate truth. So, that's one of the problems we have. And I can give you another semester course on why why the word myth became untruth is because they're also non-rational and reason is the big god of the Western. So myths became, they, they were not factual. One of, the things is, one of the things that Jung was very helpful for in terms of biblical study is that Jung said if we could ever learn the difference between psychic truth and physical fact, we would begin to understand the Bible. The difference between psychic truth and physical fact. And so that guy that's out there looking for the ark up on Mount Ararat is looking for physical fact. You know, but there's psychic truth in the ark. So that's that kind of thing. Yes, sir. You mentioned Joseph Campbell earlier. Yeah. His definition of a myth was that a, as a metaphor, something that could not be explained in any other, any other way, any language, yeah. except the myth. And I think this applies mainly to, he was using it in, in the case of the, uh, of the uh, creation story. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we have tr- we've come a long way since then. That was a wonderful myth that we could live by and, and uh, set standards by and everything like this. Yeah. But there's been so many changes now that it's hard to, to follow that myth anymore. We need a new story. One of his definitions of uh, the function of myth was that it bridges the gap between imagination and science. So that at the time that those stories were created, they were an attempt, 
to bridge the gap between what they knew and what they didn't know. And, and they were. But in addition to that, I think that they, if they well up out of the unconscious or out of the collective unconscious, they have archetypal truth to them. And we're looking for what are those shapes of truth that are in these sacred stories. And so I'll be doing that all day tomorrow, as a matter of fact, just to sort of look at some of those mythological structures and see if they don't reveal something about the nature of God and the nature of human. Somebody else, yes, please. You just mentioned, you know, if you want to go on this journey and it's a, kind of a button for you, you're going to go to hell and back. Yeah. And what that brought to mind for me was St. John of the Cross, his dark night of the soul. Yeah. And then I got thinking, well, this really ought to connect to everything you've said for the last hour and a half. So I was wondering if you could take that a little further. The, the concept of to hell and back or dark night of the soul? Well, I mean, essentially, uh, there seems to be no way to get to where we're going without going through hell. I mean, it's a part of the myth. Now, hell in this sense is not just that American religion understanding of hell, which is the place of punishment. It's the negative father view of hell. And that is, if you don't follow the rules, you get kicked out, and that's where you have to go. And that's not what I'm talking about with hell. Talking much more of the Greek sense of Hades, that there is this dark place of gestation. You know, this place of, of learning that you can't learn any other way. It, was, it will be referred to us upon our return as, as hell because it, it took us within an inch of our lives or it, it took away our previous structures or it, it uh, you know, changed our relationships or you know, whatever else. Uh, it probably has pain, it has uh, anxiety, it has all those sort of affective characteristics to it. But it was, it was, it's the period of gestation and, and growth that comes that Hades, the underworld, uh, requires. And so, you know, it's, a, it's an attempt to sort of change a worldview to see that this is part of process rather than punishment. And that it may be a requirement for whatever it is that we're to do, and the moral courage to go ahead and do it, um, you know, is is difficult to to get and find. And that's why we need companions and guides. We need people who we can who go with us and people who guide us. I don't think one can do one cannot do the work alone. And this is one of those other paradoxes that I love to say. I alone must become myself. I cannot become myself alone. <laughs> and, and we live, we have to have companions and guides along the way. And any of us who is a guide has been guided. So that's a, that's a response. And it's, you know, spiritually we've known for, for a long time that, that this uh, valley of the shadow of death, this dark night of the soul, this belly of the whale, you know, all of those things are about this human experience. Jung said that the myth of the first half of life is the dragon slayer. The myth of the second half of life is the night sea journey, the Nakia. And so the night sea journey, the belly of the whale, all those are a part of this requirement, and there is power in the darkness. Yeah. Got a little evangelical there, didn't I? Yes. Please. 
somebody? At the very back, yeah. Um, you made a point of distinguishing between pathological pain and the pain of emotion or suffering. Yeah. Is the extension of what you're trying to say go to the side that says ultimately suffering is what we're doing to ourselves, that it's a, a pinching of ourselves? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I was saying that, that, and once again, we talk in, in sort of images or symbols that, that to literalize or concretize, very dangerous. Uh, Jung, uh, there was a wonderful, interesting little book by Miguel Serrano called Hesse and Jung. He was friends of both of them, and Hesse evidently was analyzed by Jung, and so, but in, in that interview, he goes to see Jung at a very old age, and Jung said, Jung, you know, you, we could idealize Jung if we wanted to, but he, this is a tortured man. And, and Jung, even at, at his end, he never felt that he was understood. He felt rejected by the continental theologians. He didn't think anybody ever really understood what he was about. He, he, you know, he was not, you know, this knight of, of uh, analytical psychology. He was a tortured man. Genius, but nonetheless tortured. He said, I'm afraid only the poets will ever understand me. Now, so I want to speak poetically for a minute, that the self creates suffering for the psyche. In order to build soul, in order to transform, that it is the crucible out of which, you know, the... the soul is formed. And uh, so, yes, we create our own suffering, but it has meaning. I mean, it has purpose. Um, and any of these illnesses or accidents or divorces or failures, if we can understand the meaning, then that's how we integrate them. A neurosis is a suffering that has not yet found its meaning. Uh, Robert Johnson, one of his books, I think it's, uh, maybe it's Owning Your Own Shadow or maybe in, in the Psychology of Ecstasy or the Psychology of Joy, but he tells an anecdote, probably apocryphal about Jung, that one of Jung's analysands came in and said, Dr. Jung, I'm so thrilled, I've just been made president of my company. And Jung says, I'm so sorry. But I think if we work hard, we can get you through it. <laughs> Another analysis comes in and says, I've been fired. Young opens a bottle of wine and says, we must celebrate. Something important will now happen. So it's the, it's, you know, but I think we've got to be careful because we're speaking once again rather romantically here because there is you know, self-sabotage and masochism and lots of other things that go on that we do to ourselves that are not about individuation. They're about being stuck in neurotic, pathological behavior patterns. So, you know, not everybody who gets fired is on his way to glory. You know, he may be stuck in a very pathological pattern. So I don't want to get the idea that, that everything bad that happens is good because not everything bad that happens is good because it may just be the continuation of an old pattern of behavior. 
I think it's a recovery move. It says a neurosis is uh, continuing to behave in the same pattern, expecting different results. And so, you know, I don't want to make these gross generalizations and saying, well, if something bad happens to you, you know, now something good will happen, because it might not. Yes. Along the same line of thinking about suffering, I, I wonder if you would say something about... Uh, because these were originally recorded as cassettes, there is something missing here right at the beginning when they turn the tape over, like a statement is missing. But then he picks up with the previous question. Thank you. Chopping wood and hauling water, you know? I mean, that, there's... <laughs> There's meaning in spirituality in hauling water. Thank you. People who have suffered at the hands of others, I, I see that as um, a minimal potentiality for transformation. I see it as a major possibility of destructive behavior that, that is so wounding and so difficult that it... Um, Now, we, we can say in sort of words of faith um, that, that there's nothing that will destroy our relationship with God or the self. And, um, you know, we've got those kind of interesting cliches that that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. So, you know, I... It depends on sort of the quality of life we're looking for, and survival, you know, for some is a quality of life. And uh, surviving, uh, suffering from the hands of others, um, I don't think is quite enough. I think we, you know, we, that's not the kind of life I want for, for anybody. It's just to survive it. I think it has to be um, used, though, as a part of the fate, that one's fate. Nietzsche said we have to learn to love our fate, those things that, over which we didn't have control, and that our destiny really does depend on how we deal with our fate. And if my fate was to be abused, my destiny depends on how I integrate that and deal with it. But once again, um, don't bring me to that test. I don't, I don't want my um, fate to be at the suffering at the hands of others or for anybody's to be. Yes. Uh, earlier on, you were talking about um, uh, metanoia when you yeah. were giving definitions, yeah. and um, ultimately you describe that as individuation. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about individuation as either connected to or similar to or parallel to the process of um, conversion in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Okay. Let me make a couple of disclaimers first about individuation because it, it's um, easily 
lapses into one of the isms, which is individualism. And uh, Jung was awfully clear about his concept of individuation, that it could not be done apart from community, that, that it, a requirement for individuation is that you are in relationship, because it's through our relationships and our projections and all that that we grow. So you can't individuate in isolation. Um, it's interesting that the word salvation, which really comes from the root salvo, which really means to heal, like salve, same root. So that salvation and conversion and individuation and wholeness, I think, share things in common. They may have some doctrinal baggage that would make them different. Conversion has some doctrinal baggage that might make it different from individuation. Because traditionally, much of American Christianity talks about conversion as living only in the light. That I'm converting from the darkness into the light and I'm, I'm not going to smoke and drink and dance anymore. I've converted my style of life to what the collective demands. So that conversion is really not a transformation, it's an adaptation. Now if we mean by conversion what metanoia means, it means the cha change in the way I view myself in the world. Now that, that would be conversion and metanoia in the same way. So that, you know, we've got a lot of baggage around the word conversion, and we do around individuation and too. So, so. Individuation, I think, for a lot of people really seems selfish, self-serving, narcissistic, autoerotic, you know, and, and it can be, you know. We can use all of these ideas as ways of justifying, you know, our illness. I was just acting out my shadow. Well, it's sick. Well, then to follow up on that, um, the more mm, vocabulary is hard. Um, I guess I was taught when you said doctrinally. I guess my early religious formation training would have been. I would have understood conversion to be the same as Saul falling off the horse when yeah. he was struck with a bolt of lightning, right. and then became Paul and forever after was different. Yep, yep, yep. As I understand it now, it's, it's a process. Yep. It happens over and over and I over. Agree. I said, I said yeah. that for me, process is an archetype and that everything's campfire setting that I was around and I gave my life to God or whatever was the moment it happened when in fact it had been a process. And you know, this does happen to us though in a way, and that is that um, Awareness or insight uh, may come in a moment. And in that moment, it appears as though that that was the epiphany of conversion and transformation. But what, what contributed to that moment? What, you know, what was all the work that we had done previously to prepare for that moment? And we seem to discount that as if it all happened in the moment when it was the process that got us prepared for the moment. Uh, that's why I don't think uh, 
any attempt at, at growth is wasted, that it accumulates. And, and so, you know, it, and I got this insight at this time, the light bulb went off, and I think that that's when it happened, when in fact it, it was a whole process. Okay, so that, that's a couple of responses. One more, and then I think we're going to be running out of time here. Anybody else? One more. Yes, please. Except the fact that this uh, wholeness, this integration and so forth is a unattainable thing. It's way out there. Uh, even the fact that death is a part of that, which means that maybe yeah. at some point after that, it's going to be out there. Yeah. I'm also uh, see ourselves as by, you know, by our own intrinsic values, we want to grow and, uh, and uh, strive uh, for this wholeness, this integration and so forth. However, my ego has enough gratification needs that I need something along the way to let yeah. me know objectively that I'm making progress. You want to shoot one, one birdie. Right. And so my question is, can I, I mean, I, I used to be codependent. Now I'm just unintegrated. Yeah. Right. So it's a, it's, 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 it's a progressive thing. And Was, so, wasn't it just 20 years ago that I was okay and you were okay? Right. <laughs> right. And well, so let's I, live I, the can paradox. we achieve that? I want to achieve yeah. some, I want some objective yeah. uh, standard. Can I just go to Marga and say, am, am I progressing? And she's yeah. going to tell me. And yeah. what, is, what is the objective? How can let, I know objectively let, that let I am me, progressing? Let me present a, uh, a possible uh, further frustration for you. <laughs> I think we must live that paradox that we are now whole and will never be whole. We must live that paradox that, that, that we are whole all along and we're becoming whole all along. That's the paradox I would like to live in between. That I think we do have moments of wholeness. I mean, I think that there are times when, when the ego self axis is connected and you know, God is in his heaven and all is right with the world. We have that moment of wholeness. There's an old evangelical Christian hymn uh, called Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Well, I think there's a foretaste, you know, that we get a, you know, I, I, I've had several of those. I'm driving along, and all of a sudden I feel well. I feel well. That's a moment, and I think that, you know, that's a, a foretaste, a, a sense of I am well, and I'm becoming well. So it's that paradox. That's pretty much Thank you, Mark. With that, we'll stop. And I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I want to invite everyone on your way out, pick up one of the flyers on Carol Pearson's lecture and workshop. And uh, she's not Pittman McGee, but she's Carol Pearson. And I'm sure that will be a, I certainly expect that to be also a very good evening and workshop. And the flyers are out on that table towards the door and take one of those with you. And thank you all for coming and we'll see many of you tomorrow. And we hope to be able to greet, the, greet all of you again at some other event. Thank you very much. <laughs>